Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. This episode we meet the Oscar-nominated filmmakers behind Pixar's Soul and Netflix's If Anything Happens, I Love You. Hello everyone, welcome back. Squiggly Podcast, first one of 2021. How are you, Steve? I'm fine, and I'm dandy, Ben. How are you? Eh, you know, carrying on, keeping my head down. Good. You know, an ad came on today, actually, uh, for LinkedIn. I think it was Spotify or YouTube or something. And the opening line of the ad was, 2021 is looking up. (laughs) Is it? Really? Really? (laughs) But I guess if you want to compare, like, dog shit to warm dog shit... (laughs) <laughs> 20, the, the, you didn't listen to the whole advert. You went, 2021 is looking up from the gutter. <laughs> God, it's, I guess, a sort of covid anniversary because it would have been roughly, probably nearly exactly a year ago that we did the last sort of normal-ish Times podcast, which would have been the British Animation Awards. Yeah, that's right. That was the last time we were allowed out in public for, uh, you know... <laughs> Not because of this ankle tag I've got on Ben, you know, because of the global pandemic. Um, yeah, I've not got an ankle tag on, just 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 in case people take that literally. But yeah, um, yeah. There are some of them out there. <laughs> yes, there are some of them out there. <laughs> so, but yeah, uh, I remember going to the BAAs and everybody was doing the old like, oh, let's let's shake elbows, let's let's kick each other's feet. Oh, oh, oh what a what a fun time this is. This will all blow over, won't it? You know, all looking at each other and, and right at the beginning, like we're not allowed to hug each other. And then at the end, when everyone's absolutely shit-faced, they're like, come here, you, give us a hug. Uh, and, well, yeah. all the, the, the post-award interviews, where everyone <laughs> just shouting over each other into the spraying <laughs> you know, 10 people's <laughs> DNA all over your squiggly microphone. <laughs> Yes, yeah. I think it's, it's an got- honour and a privilege. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. Oh, don't shake my hand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to going back to those days. <laughs> Just, uh, I should have wore. I should have brought an umbrella with me. Yeah. I think I. I think I did cry off the um, the actual attending. Possibly not because I was being socially conscious as it's a faff to get to the city on a Thursday or a Wednesday. Mm. But I think for us, the last kind of normal-ish thing was Anima in Brussels, mm. which was fantastic. It was a kind of nice send-off for, like, normalcy. And, um, and yeah, they, I guess, just wrapped up their online edition for this year. But last year, they were able to hold it properly, like, right before things sort of properly kicked off. It's a weird thing, though, to, like not be able to fly somewhere for your holidays. He said middle classily. <laughs> I can't well, believe I haven't summered in the Laurentians for oh so long. <laughs> it did feel odd. It did feel odd not going to Annecy, I will say. This has become mm. a we're just reminiscing about the year that this has been the year of, of COVID with Ben and Steve gather round. But yeah, it, it did feel odd not going to Annecy, didn't it? And not having that kind of not squeezing onto an easy jet and or, you know, having to watch your bags be kicked across the tarmac or any of that type of stuff. It, it, it's... Getting frisked 
every time you'd enter a building. Absolutely. And, and every airport, I always end up uh, uh, getting frisked. Uh, I, I always look dodgy on purpose, you know, just so I can get, you know, I just, I just yearn for human touch. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's um, It's been an odd old year, hasn't it? But somehow, some way, animation has thrived and continued and uh, everyone's everyone's managed to do it in the pyjamas. It's, it's been absolutely... It's been an absolutely marvellous year for uh, for animation, at least. Well, we're uh, recording this on a Thursday, and this is definitely the, at least the second shirt I've had on this week. So that's a good week. Wow. A two-shirter. Fantastic. I mean, I'll uh, I'll find out when I put this hoodie on, when I, I suppose when I chisel it off, Yeah. when it's time to leave the house. When you say animation is thriving, I mean, I don't know if I feel the same way given that we're facing a future without Pepe Le Pew. Oh, my. I mean, yeah. is that is that thriving, Steve? <laughs> it's not a world I want to live in, Ben. <laughs> you know, given that we run, I think it metrics-wise is the biggest UK-based, certainly, animation, you know, outlet, industry outlet. Imagining having an opinion on that <laughs> in, in the year after 1958, <laughs> he had so much more to give as a character <laughs> it's funny because that's such an old like observation as well like people like think you're kind of like, oh i've just discovered by the way that that pepe le pew is a bit uh lascivious <sighs> yeah it was like the, there was a dave Chappelle bit on that from like 25 years ago it was absolutely hysterical i was like i can't show my nephew this <laughs> but uh no people uh people love to discover stuff in their minds, it's it's it, it has been a it, yeah. We're not going to talk about Space Jam two, are we? We're not leading onto that, are we? Uh, I wouldn't have much. As, I didn't even really have much affection for Space Jam one. It might sound sacrilegious, but uh, yeah, yeah. There we go. I think uh, what has been what has to be said, uh, which doesn't need to be said, has been said. <laughs> <laughs> about those two uh, particular uh, hot topics uh, uh, du jour. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's certainly an odd one. But, you know, there's so much brilliant new stuff coming out. Why do you need, you know, crusty old antics of, uh, of, of classic cartoons? Oh, exactly. It's, it's, I'm, I'm looking forward to the fresh, you know, new ideas that we have coming our way, like uh, the new Chicken Run movie. <laughs> and the Tom and Jerry movie. And <laughs> the Space Jam oh, movie. Oh, fuck me. Stay to that. <laughs> Did you see it? Did you did well, you run to the I cinemas? I mean, I've seen the, the the clips and stuff, but I mean, I couldn't imagine them because the, the they did a Tom and Jerry movie when we were kids, yeah. and that was like notoriously dreadful. And from what I remember, it was just this completely arbitrary premise, and Tom and Jerry are just sort of there. Yeah, and isn't that it's sort of they've done the exact same thing with this. And uh, what I found fascinating about it is like how many people are thrown by cell shading in 2021. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> like people like really struggling to decipher the animation process. It's not that new. It's like they were in the olden days, but it's also new and it's magic and I don't get it and I don't understand it, but it's new. There was it released at the same time though. Uh, recently, I think it's HBO released some shorts, some Tom and Jerry shorts, and they match 
the I think it was done by the same team that did the new Looney Tunes animation that everyone was absolutely delighted with because they were exactly the same as the old Looney Tunes uh, animation. And so they they've kind of they've come on board and designed uh, a new Tom and Jerry short. And that was very that was given you know high praise, and I think that's because they knew what Tom and Jerry's all about. It's about seven minutes long, and it's about a cat and a mouse beating each other up, and then you go in, you go out, and there there you go, finished. It's interesting. It sort of happened at the same time. You get the the good new shorts for both, and then yeah, there are two films that look a bit like meh. Whereas the actual short form stuff is holding up, and well, maybe there's a, a lesson in that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I remember the the only type of like film with Looney Tunes characters, apart from you know Roger Rabbit, which of course was everyone um, or everyone they could get the rights to, I suppose. Um, but the only kind of like film with specifically the Looney Tunes world, because I didn't care for the one with Brendan Fraser either. Really, I mean, I was a bit old, probably at that point. But they did films back in the day, which were just like collections of the shorts, and they do about seven minutes of new animation, like linking them together. Those are great. Mm. They just repackaged the good shit. Yeah, you know? the uh, a thousand and one rabbit tales. I think it was called, wasn't it? The, my favorite one was called the Bugs Bunny Road Runner movie. Mm. Which was an odd title because it wasn't about Bugs Bunny and the Roadrunner doing anything together. It was a bunch of like Looney Tunes best of, like yeah. slightly edited short films that Bugs Bunny is like presenting from his manner. And it has this really salty introduction where Bugs Bunny introduces the creative team behind the Looney Tunes and he lists everyone except Pop Clappet because <laughs> Chuck Jones did that film. So it's just, just a motherfuck Bob Clampett. So there's nothing Clampett in that film at all, which is, you know, it's probably the 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 only issue really you could find with it because all of the Chuck Jones shorts in it are fucking great. It's yeah. the it's What's Opera Doc and Daffy Duck is Robin Hood and uh, there's this 20 minute segment at the end which is just edited together from about 20 different Roadrunner shorts. And that's why it's called the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie, just because just the ending sequence is just all Roadrunner. Right. So no structure to it, really. It's just like, fuck it, we got this content. There's a VHS market now, let's just slap it together. And I do like the, the title of it as well, is is if you've ever heard a title which is, ah, we'll think of a proper title later, that is yeah. the title of it, <laughs> you know? What is it? It's the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner movie. No, no, don't put it on the front of the video. No, that's not what I said. We said, said, wait, we'll fax you the video. In fact, we'll fax you the actual title later on. So even even those kind of like very very sort of rushed, cynical processes for making a film, even those more interesting than uh, a second Space Jam. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, oh, we shall see. Either way. When we're, when we're t- talking about Space Jam 2 taking home the Oscar next year. Um, exactly. We'll be sat here eating our words. Egg on we? our face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Oscars, we are deep in award season, aren't we? We're in that, that magical time of year where people give themselves a big old slap on the back. And it truly is magical. It is. <laughs> Uh, should we start with the BAFTAs, though? Let's start in the UK, because we've got some BAFTA noms as well. Um, why the fuck not? Yeah, well, why Why exactly? Um, yeah, so so obviously, uh, 
the and, and I want to start with the BAFTAs because I've got a little bit of a gripe with almost all except for the Oscars animation award ceremonies this year or award ceremonies which include animation within them. Yeah. For the BAFTAs, they have three uh, uh, animation categories. They have animated film, which is two Pixar films and uh, a, uh, a cartoon saloon film. And they have British short animation, which they have uh, The Owl and the Pussycat by Mulhill and uh, Laura Duncalf, uh, The Fire Next Time, by uh, Ronaldo, uh, Pele, uh, Yangling Wang, uh, Kerry Jade uh, Kolb, and The Song of a Lost Boy by Daniel Quirk, Jamie MacDonald, and Brid Anstein. We have polls on Squiggly, so let's, you know, tell us which one you think uh, should win and uh, vote on the website, and uh, your vote will mean nothing. It'll just go on to <laughs> basically. <laughs> Nothing will happen. But for a brief moment, you'll feel like you belong. You feel like you've done something. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, now, great. I'm, I'm glad those films have been nominated uh, and we can talk about the films in a second. But the BAFTAs and the Caesars or Cesars or whatever, um, they've only got three categories per animation. Also, three nominees per animation category. Whereas for the BAFTAs, you look at Anything else, you look at, you know, actors, actresses, uh, you know, film, documentary, they're all, they all have at least five. Hmm. And so it, it, you look at it and you think, well, you had a long list. I know that you had, you know, other films that are fantastic that have been submitted to your categories. So why only have three in your animated feature nominees list? It's a very good point because also this year... Uh, I'm not sure if it was because of COVID, but they opened up the BAFTAs to pretty much anyone with a film. You didn't have to be in qualifying festivals if it was an animated film. Hmm. So they were they were opening themselves up to a ton of potentially wonderful short films they could have tapped into, including mine and, and Laura Beth's. <laughs> we both had a film doing the rounds last year. Two slots that I'm sure we would have filled. If they hadn't been so nearsighted, exactly. Yeah, I think we're looking at some proper Illuminati stuff here, Ben. I think you've been you've been struck off a list on purpose. I think that's what's gone on. It's the gentle art of making enemies <laughs> by subversive, controversial podcasting. <laughs> you know, taking the system to task. They probably they blacklisted me for good. I'm sure. But uh, uh, if we can think of a reasonable excuse as to why they have not made the BAFTA uh, or the um, the Caesars, Caesars, I don't know how you're supposed to pronounce it. Um, why they've not made those awards, uh, sorry, those nomination categories, five or six. I suppose the reasonable excuse you could probably come up with is that feature animation was once upon a time, 15 years ago, when these categories started off. You didn't get, you weren't always guaranteed five decent features a year. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, you are absolutely, because for the um, the BAFTAs and the uh, Caesar Caesars together, or Caesars, I don't know how to pronounce it, Caesars, um, they're three completely different films. The Caesars, uh, it was Calamity, uh, the Remy Chaillet uh, film, uh, Joseph by Aurel, and Little Vampire by uh, Johann Starr. So, and then obviously with the BAFTAs, we've got Onward, we've got Soul, and we've got Wolfwalkers. So why couldn't the BAFTAs have included 
Calamity and Joseph and and Little Vampire or any any of the other fantastic features that have been doing the rounds. I guess they they want to go home a little earlier. Yeah, you know, they take all that extra time reading out two other nominees per category. Those those seconds add up. They certainly do. They certainly do. That's why they've got ten people in the uh, best picture or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think what the work that BAFTA do is brilliant. You know, they they promote a lot. They promote you know games, television. They do a, a fantastic job. It's a little bit jarring looking at that nominee list and seeing that every other category is is full to bursting. And whereas you look at the animation categories and they only give it to three, or the, you know, and and it just seems to me with as we've seen recently going to places like Cartoon Movie, um, which I recently went to, there's a couple of reviews on the site, there's an absolute wealth of feature films coming up. And we know going to festivals that short filmmaking is absolutely thriving as well. So why limit it to three? If you're there to promote and and to kind of show off, you know, these categories, then put a few more noms in there. Come on. They probably just feel like they're, they're gauging the interest of that sort of general audience. Mm. By and large, I, I do think people have a kind of odd relationship with animation that are outside of our circles. Like some people just genuinely dislike it. They find it kind of an objectionable medium because they don't sort of understand the point of it or, you know, the age old one is they think it should be relegated to children's entertainment. It's facile. It's um, not elevated cinema. I think a good litmus test for anything is seeing like comments from the general public on like a Facebook post about something and <laughs> the degree to which they understand what it is they're even looking at. We're seeing it in a very different way, I think, than, than most of you know the rest of the world do. We're seeing it either as aspiring animators ourselves or people who work in the industry or people who work in a curational capacity. You know, we're, we're looking at different elements of it. We're analyzing it in different ways. We're finding value where other people, it would just go completely over their heads. Not because they're stupid or we're particularly smart, definitely not because we're particularly smart, <laughs> uh, but because it's just not what I think they look to for their entertainment. This is the era of, of you know, TOWIE and fucking um, that Australian wedding show and Gogglebox and whatever. they people. That's what people dig. Yeah. Discord, Twitch, commentary. Words you've heard of. <laughs> MySpace. <laughs> Indeed. It's it's weird, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I'm completely with you because I often draw this analogy whenever somebody somebody will say something about, you know, oh, animation, it's just, it's just kid stuff. And I was like, well, what are you into then? Oh, I, I like football. Well, children play football. Children, you know, kick a ball around a, a school playground. Why, 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 what is, why, why do you think it's such an adult thing? You know, what, 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 what I'm telling you is football can be enjoyed by everyone and animation can be enjoyed by everyone. There's no difference. And I just use that football, football as an arbitrary thing because I've, I've no, I, I, I have nothing to do with football. Um, the only thing I, I know about football is how disappointed my dad is in me that I'm not a massive Legion United supporter. Um, but yeah, that, that's kind of, um, that kind of, uh, those worlds. And I wouldn't put anyone down for, for being a massive football fan because, you know, love what you love. That's, that's nothing to do with me. Enjoy it. Please enjoy it. But don't, don't feel the need to bring anything else down with it. 
it's sort of an easy target, I think. Yeah. yeah. But also the people who tend to like have the biggest issue with potentially quite interesting animation, they'll happily f- sit with some family guy on of an evening. Mm. It's like by the same token, they don't get why bad animation is shit. <laughs> yeah. See, yeah. now I'm doing it. Oh, Ben. You fell into it. You Oh, look. Look at yourself. <laughs> should we talk about some highbrow Oscar nominations or, or should we carry on talking about Pepe Le Pew? What do you want to do, do, Ben? Uh, do you have any picks for the BAFTAs? BAFTA-wise, uh, I think obviously the animated film uh, category is very interesting. Obviously, Pixar are absolutely terrified of Wolf Walkers, so they put two films up against it. Uh you know, that's the only way that they can defeat the mighty Wolf Walkers is by putting it up against Soul and Onward. I would, uh, I'd love to see Wolf Walkers win. Soul is a fantastic film. Onward is a fantastic film. But Wolf Walkers is sublime. Absolutely sublime. Uh, so what do, what, what would I like to win? Wolf Walkers. What will win? Soul. I think that's, uh, that's the way I'm going with the, uh, animated, um, animated film. Have you seen, you've seen all three of them, Ben? Uh, no, I've not seen Soul. Ah. By all accounts, it's great. I I would only be sort of annoyed if Onward won. And not to have a pop at the people who made Onward, but it was fine. You know, it was mm. it was okay. It was a it was a perfectly watchable film. But, you know, I think the other two in terms of the degree to which people are talking about them. Obviously, a lot more people are talking about Soul because of you know the nature of the beast. But everyone who's seen Wolf Walkers, no one has seen Wolf Walkers and been like, eh. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's yeah. a really really enchanting experience. So I mean, it's the same as you really. It's it's and probably the same as most people. It's you know, of course, it's the same with the Oscars. It's going to be Soul. Um, because they are not known for uh, throwing us any curveballs when it comes to Oscar winners or BAFTA winners. But I, don't, I mean, I don't know, maybe they're due, I feel, Cartoon Saloon. Yeah. Like, it's it's enough already. Let's 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 stop fucking around. <laughs> Give them a yeah. fucking Oscar. <laughs> yeah. They certainly are. And, and I think Wolf Walkers is the strongest film they've ever put out. Every year, they, every, whenever they put a film out, it's always enchanting. It's always magical. It's always wonderful. It's always a world you want to just watch again and again and again and just be a part of. But Wolf Walkers is just, it is a masterpiece. I, I You know, obviously the word masterpiece is thrown around and, you know, think about what it truly means. It's when somebody masters their craft and actually manages to produce something with all the skill and knowledge that they have acquired over years of, of, of practice. That's what Wolf Walkers is. It's a masterpiece. And Pixar have kind of, if I were to really reduce Pixar down, they have two modes. They have kind of fun mode and they have thinky mode. And although all their films have a certain amount of thinky to them, um, but I think, I think onwards is more of a onward is more of a uh, fun film uh, where they create a world and they explore that world and they play with every bit of the sandbox they've created. It's it's not dissimilar to the kind of Shrek world, the fairy tale world, uh, and the jokes that can be taken out of the kind of fairy tale landscape. But they've kind of Pixarized it. Uh, obviously, it's nothing like Shrek, but it's. It's they've taken a concept 
and they've run with it. It's, it's the same job that they did with Cars, the same job they did with Monsters, Inc., uh, the same job that they've done with any film where they take a, create a world and then play on any puns or play on any kind of bits to flesh out this this concept in this world and it's good fun and it's solid piece of filmmaking but soul is yes it's a concept as well it's very high concept but soul really kind of inspects yourself and the way that you think and the way that you act and and it 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 makes you think afterwards whereas uh, onwards it's more about you enjoy yourself in the moment and then you go that was good fun whereas soul afterwards you might go oh that bit was clever oh that bit was yeah, that that bit I, I you know I, I saw a bit a bit extra with that. Then I you know that bit stuck with me. Um, yeah, that's my assessment on the two types of uh, Pixar film, and I think these two are good examples of those. Tell me I'm wrong. Well, the difference, I think, like you say, I think it's probably Soul is the kind of film when I get a chance to see it, I will quite happily give it my full attention. Whereas Onward mm. was one of those films where it could have been any film as far as how I kind of engaged with it. It wasn't boring. It was it was funny, I think. <laughs> um, I remember it being kind of funny. But yeah, it didn't rock my world. Whereas, you know, there are certain films that really kind of, like you say, they stay with you. So Yeah. Any top picks for the British short BAFTA animation? Uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't seen The Owl and the Pussycat. I've not. Have you seen The Owl and the Pussycat? Uh, no, I think the only one I've seen is... Um, Song of a Lost Boy. Yeah. Which I've I like. I've seen uh, The Fire Next Time as well. That's a very good film. Uh, beautiful kind of urban, uh, you know, environment. Lots of, you know, the colours are absolutely spectacular and the kind of, the way that the film builds up, uh, what it builds to is uh, is something quite uh, special as well. But yeah, uh, The Song of a Lost Boy, I think that's NFTS, isn't it? I think both of them are NFTS. I think, um, I think The Fire Next Time and uh, The Song of of a lost boy are both nfts films oh then i probably have seen both because yeah. I, I saw song. oh yeah I'm, I'm looking at the trailer now i recognize this yeah yeah okay and nfts always kind of you know throw uh throw their all into it um the song of a lost boy uh is a great film it's what how would you describe it um mad max with with puberty, is that what <laughs> <laughs> story yeah. of, a, of a young choir, choir boy whose uh, his career is kind of uh, changed when his uh, when his balls drop halfway through, <laughs> or his voice breaks halfway through. I guess it's about it. finding your voice, huh? <laughs> it it <See>? certainly is. <laughs> My dug it though. It was you know really fun atmosphere. I love the the grotesquery of the puppets like they weren't they were kind of um not horrible but like you know, they weren't pixar looking puppets, no. but they were very <laughs> very fun and um the performances you get especially from the kind of tribal mad maxi like you say gang mm. that was great and the music the song as well the, the sort of you know choirs and all that type of stuff it's a it's a great film uh we got special visual effects as well ben which uh uh <laughs> I've seen Milan. I've not seen uh, Tenet yet. Uh, the only, the one and only Ivan, and the Midnight Sky. So I don't feel qualified to talk about these. I'm afraid. I haven't seen any of these. I mean, I'm not qualified to talk about anything else. But you know, <laughs> I've seen very few films actually, like in the last year. Certainly, you know, 
I've only seen one film like actually in a cinema and everything else is just going, it's gone sort of like straight to streaming. And yeah, there's less of a kind of impetus to, to check them out, I guess. Mm. Moving on to the Oscars, which if we get VFX, is it the exact same list of films? For the VFX, uh, it, it is. I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Love and Monsters is in the, uh, is, is in the BAFTAs. Uh, no, it's not actually. So, so the BAFTAs, you've got, um, Tenet, Greyhound, The One and Only Ivan, The Midnight Sky in Milan. And, uh, with the, uh, the Academy Awards, you have got Love and Monsters instead of Greyhound. Yeah. So that's the, that's the swap there. Right on. So, uh, yeah, the actual nominations for animation, the animation categories, the again, identical list with two more. Uh, additions for the Oscars. There's also Over the Moon and the Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon. Mm. And uh, Over the Moon, I think we talked about in the last episode, we had Glenn on, didn't we? Yes, we had both Glenn and the team behind Wolfwalkers on as well. So, yeah, so th- there they are. They've, they've made it through to the, the, the top of the pile, the Oscars. They've made it, <laughs> they've all fought their way through. And this is the five that are in the the Oscars. Does the addition of these two other films sway your attitude about who might win? Uh, I I don't think so. I really don't no. think so. I think uh, it's great. It's absolutely wonderful to see uh, Shaun the Sheep movie Farmageddon in there, and it's great to see um, Over the Moon on there as well. I would put Over the Moon on par with with Onward. Sure, it, it's a fairly decent film. Uh, really well, kind of. Uh, it's a sweet film, you know. It's well designed. It's well considered. It's the Wizard of Oz meets kind of a music video. It, it's it's really kind of it's a really well done piece of uh, piece of work. I think it you know it does deserve a nomination, uh, or at least to be shortlisted before a nomination. It's it's yeah, it's great to see it there. This is the thing about the Oscars this year. There's nothing in the Oscars apart from you know. I'd like to see I'd like to have seen Joseph or I'd like to have seen Calamity or something like that up for an Oscar. I think that they deserved. Um, a little bit more recognition in in the uh, the Baftas and the Oscars, yeah. but um, yeah, I, I'm I'm quite pleased with this as as pleased as uh, as as I can be. And you know, what does Bafta care whether I'm pleased or not? <laughs> well, I feel like a more satisfying Bafta selection if you were just going to have it be three would be to take out Onward and put in the Shaun the Sheep movie. Absolutely, yeah, I'm opinion. with you there. Yeah, which wasn't. I mean, I, I, I liked it. A lot. I think I liked it more than Onward and Over the Moon. You know, it it wasn't quite as as rock solid as Shaun the Sheep one, which was you know Arben at its best and not kind of overcomplicating things or trying too hard. I think this movie Farm Again, I think had a bit more by way of like visual spectacle from time to time but you know it's all the gags in it and stuff it's you know showing the shape you can't really go wrong with it hmm. and perhaps the the best thing about it and uh, i think i was lamenting in our squiggly film club series of podcasts at some point the dying breed in uh, movies where at the end of the movie when the credits would roll you would be treated to a rap song by a young <laughs> musician of the era where the rap lyrics were summarizing the events of the movie you just watched. And that had died out, I think, after maybe Men in Black, I think was probably the last one to do it. Uh, the Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, brings that back. Thank goodness. To my delight, there is a, a lively Shaun the Sheep rap with 
with you know Vic Reeves on backing vocals. <laughs> well, with that in mind, I think uh, I think Soul and Wolfwalkers are shaking in the boots. I think you know they really. I loved the first Shaun the Sheep movie. I really did. I think the first Shaun the Sheep movie really. What I loved about it was that it was such an amazing beautiful surprise even what we went and did the studio tour didn't we that was great little squiggly family day out it was uh, it was wonderful um uh but certain elements of it where where they all start singing and and when uh when the farmer regains his his uh, you know his uh memories at the end and uh, it just it really kind of speaks to you i really you know it surprises you it comes out of nowhere and says and says yeah yeah i'm legitimate here i'm a i'm not just uh, you know just just stuff to keep kids quiet uh and farmageddon does that as well to a certain extent uh but not as much as the first one i would say but i think that's that's a problem with sequels isn't it they get to explore different areas um but yeah i did i did, really did like uh farmageddon but I'm afraid to say it's still Wolfwalkers for me. I really want Wolfwalkers to win the the best animated feature at the Oscars. Uh, same, and uh, certainly the squiggly voting audience is inclined to agree with us. Mm. Uh, at the moment, at the time of recording, uh, Wolfwalkers is well in the lead. So, moving on to best animated short film, some more from uh, Disney Pixar Burrow. Mm. Now, is this a um, Pixar Spark short or a? Disney short circuit or something different. It's a Pixar Spark short. Ah, I remembered the names of the things. Well done. <laughs> I don't even have Disney Plus. Well, you're missing out. I mean, uh, now the X Files is on Disney Plus. Ben, there's there's no excuse. That was the thing that bummed me out actually when I I graduated from my BA and the first time I watched the X Files after that, I was like, oh, I can do all of these special effects. <laughs> In like, and I have the afternoon know. free, so I can. Just <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now Disney own everything. You just need a Disney Plus subscription, and you can watch everything. Ben, that's the <laughs> apart from um, the stuff that Netflix own. Fantastic, Burrow. Any opinion on this film? Uh, yeah, I, I, I watched it early on. Um, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was very nice. Uh, nice, damning with faint, faint praise. Uh, it's. It's clever in its kind of um in the sort of its hook is is a kind of a nice kind of throwback to uh i don't know if you remember the there's certain books that i'm thinking of when i was a kid that i used to like really young i'm talking like four or five i'm thinking maybe richard scary or scary um you know the uh the guy who used to you know the the, the worm driving around in an apple that guy and the sort of weird tabby cat uh, characters um, but sometimes on, on his books I think I'm pretty sure it's him they do like a big spread and you'd see all the characters it wasn't quite like a where's Wally uh, and sometimes there'd be cutaways and you'd see inside houses and you'd see and you'd spend all day looking on all day obviously um, or maybe all day uh, if you were me looking at um, looking at, through all the windows and seeing what all the characters were up to and following, you know, following around and seeing how things interacted with one another. Um, it was a kind of, you know, that, that type of that artwork. And you get that with Burrow. You get that type of um, that entertainment. Obviously, it's, it's a simple story. It's a six minutes long or something like that. It's a rabbit who's just trying to build a home. But as she digs into the ground, she bumps into other creatures that already live in the ground. 
and she just wants to find a space of her own. Uh, comes to a climax, and there's 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 danger. They all work together. They save the day, and then they help each other. You know, um, really simple stuff. But because it it's six minutes long, it gets in there. It gives you the gags. It gives you the premise. It gives you the fun, and then it gets out there. So it's a really well rounded um, little film. Uh, does it deserve to be nominated for best animated short? Uh, um, I've seen better things on the festival circuit this year. I really have, but um, yeah, mm. that's the that's the issue with me and, uh, and and the Oscars. All in all, I think considering the long list of the Oscars from a few months ago, mm. you know, we're at the point where it's like ninety plus films. That long list was littered with so much incredible work. Yeah, that the short list was pretty underwhelming. So I think of that short list, you know, the the five films that have gone through to be nominated there, I think the better crop. But it's a shame because there's a lot of films that I think deserved a nomination this year that didn't come go through, you know. That, well, absolutely, yeah. And maybe not even deserved a nomination, but were objectively just better films. <laughs> and yeah. I know it's odd to, to say that, you know, <laughs> so that can be an objective thing, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a coincidence that, you know, lots of people get behind certain things and lots of people don't get behind other things. Like, there's a point where I think it, it stops being a matter just of taste. Like, how, how, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars has Don Hertzfeld raised for a fucking Blu-ray? Yeah. A Blu-ray in 2021. <laughs> that tells you how fucking, like, much people love his film. Why the yeah. hell it didn't get nominated? Exactly, exactly. And some just some the, some great films that were kind of subversive that would have been funny if they'd gotten through. But you know, like it would be funny if something like Don't Know What or um, Just a Guy went through. You know, but um, hey. So uh, of the sort of the long list, uh, the ones that didn't go through were Kapimahu, which I love. Uh, I think that's a that's a fantastic piece of work. Um, Out, which is another Spark Shorts. The Snail and the Whale, which was a, a the UK kind of Christmassy uh, BBC One classic. Um, uh, to Gerard, which is the the postman. Um, uh, I think he's like a, a guy who works in the post office and it's um, magic tricks and all that type of stuff. Traces as well, which uh, which I really liked. And the first time I saw that, I think I saw it when we were doing the um, we were doing selection or pre-selection for something uh and i was just yeah blown away by it the the cave the white the white one with the the caveman one you know which one i'm talking about yeah yeah so a couple of i mean i, w I would have swapped traces and um uh or kapimahu for 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 burrow uh quite happily yeah there's a whole bunch of stuff that was was on the long list that we've covered on squiggly and it's worth keeping them in mind because their uh their day in the sun i don't think is necessarily over hmm. uh given even you know without having been um nominated uh just a guy for example will be getting a screening at cardiff animation nights a special squiggly screening in a few days so ah, uh, looking up for them yeah um <laughs> no no uh, oscars schmoskers well exactly these things live on don't they they like you say um uh, what what does what what does Don Hertzfeld need with a with an Oscar? 
That's a very good point. You know, when he's when he's got when he's got people who actually enjoy his work, when he's got legitimately enjoy his work, and uh, you know, the the end a, a, ma- a major kind of complaint about the Oscars all the time is that it is basically who's got the best advertising campaign. Yeah. You know who who can uh, and particularly with the anime animation, you see it time and again when people are interview interview the anonymous the uh, the the anonymous branches that vote for these things, and they say when it comes to the animation category, they just let their 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 kids or grandchildren or nieces and nephews pick the uh, the animation category, and that's that's not on. But you know they say I didn't watch it, but I'm going to go with you know the most popular one, um, and that's no good, is it? You know, no. But it is what it is. Yeah. Until we storm the gates and uh, <laughs> set things right, I think we're just going to have to sit and uh, sit and bear it. As soon as we're allowed out of this house, Ben, that's uh, <laughs> this house like we live together. <laughs> um, so that's Burrow. Um, it, a great shot, and um, you know, really nice sort of frantic two D animation. Really good, really good stuff. Um, if you ignore my lamenting about um, uh, about whether or not it should be in the category, a genius Loki is the um, uh, the next one that's on the list, which you will have seen at Annecy. It was definitely on at Annecy. Yeah. And it is, it's, that's a film for artists, isn't it? It's just a beautiful thing to look at. Yeah. I think I would get the same enjoyment out of it without sound. Mm. Like in terms of just me personally, I, I got a lot out of it on a visual level, but I, I I didn't really engage with it super much as far as what it was saying. Right. Not that anyone asked. But, uh, <laughs> that's the whole deal with podcasts, isn't it? It's just unsolicited criticism. <laughs> get it, get it hot and fresh. Here it is. <laughs> but no, visually, it's 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 great. But I can't fault the actual animation, which is sort of the point. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful piece of work. Really, really is. Uh, and and again, I think. One of the, the good things about the Oscars is is people will, will read read Genius Loki. They won't have a Disney Plus subscription. They'll go, well, where can I see that? And they'll go out and they'll find it and they'll find a good. They'll discover a good film. Um, so uh, so win win, I suppose. There. Uh, the next one is if anything happens, I love you. What did you think to this film, Ben? It's up on Netflix at the moment. It's an interesting one. I, it was sort of came out in sort of quick succession with two other Netflix shorts or shorts that have been acquired by Netflix and they weren't part of like a, a shared scheme or anything. But uh, I remember they were kind of released around the same time and we had coverage for all three. So the other one's called Canvas and um, Cops and Robbers. It's an interesting thing with Netflix and animation. Like they, they're, I think, quite keen to try and capture the span, I suppose, of animation styles that you would see on a festival circuit, Mm. different approaches in a similar way. I suppose that, you know, Disney and Pixar are embracing artists who are coming up with, you know, different ways of approaching their visuals. There's a slight sort of political quality to all of them. Well, certainly if anything happens, I love you and uh, cops and robbers, but it's very understated in, in this one. And it isn't really until the end that it's kind of explicitly laid out that, you know, the the topic of the film is gun violence or specifically school shootings. And I think it was actually co-funded or, or made with a gun safety organization. But it doesn't kind of wear that on its sleeve super much. It leads with uh, a sort of emotional story of the aftermath of a, a shooting. And specifically parents who are trying to come to grips with it. 
Now, that's a tricky one to use as your subject matter. And if you do it badly, it's it's one of the worst things to watch. And we were actually watching a film last night called The Dirt, which was like this sort of... It felt like it was trying to be a comedy. It was about Motley Crue, the band. Hmm. And it was sort of trying to, I think follow along the sort of similar vein of that Queen movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, that came out recently. Yeah. Heavily fictionalized um, account of, you know, the making of the band. Now, in real life, one of the band members' children dies. And the way the movie deals with that is insipid and, and, and repulsive. It's so ham-fisted, soap opera acting, soap opera dialogue, that if I, it upset me a little bit because I knew it had really happened. Hmm. And I would have to assume that the band members had some kind of involvement in the film. So maybe they didn't see it the way I was seeing it, or didn't feel it was something that could be called into question. But it was so overstated, uh, cruelly, I, I felt. So I know the film is, you know, it's a horribly reviewed film. It hasn't gone down well in general, but um, that just came into my head as like an example of how you fuck that up. Mm. Um, this, I don't think is a true story, but it, it handled the subject, I think, with some decency, a little bit abstract, certainly to begin with, as far as what they're actually saying has happened. And the reveals aren't too, you know, they're not trying, I think, over hard to emotionally manipulate you but they're trying to get your attention to then you know make a point with the film and they do it with you know really nice character design and some of the set pieces are really nicely thought through the overall visual premise isn't the most original in the world as far as the kind of phantom shadows of the parents at odds with you know the real parents and what that represents, but it was an interesting one. And it's made by two actors who don't really have a history in animation directing. As far as I know, I think they kind of came into this mainly from theater acting. Mm. What did you feel about this film? I went into it without any kind of knowledge of, of what was, what the film was about. Uh, I read the interview afterwards Um and it is it is a very well done piece of work. Obviously, when I first saw it, I thought oh, I'm here. I'm looking at the aftermath of an argument or something. There's a lot of uh, a lot of anguish in in this kind of that's been built up here. And then you kind of steadily, you know, oh, something big has happened here. There's loss. There's ang you know. There's anguish. There's angst and there's um, dread. And I, I think uh, when you tell a story like this about grief. It does something special in animation. I think I've said this in the past that it does something that live action cannot. When you look at a live action film you, and you see somebody mourning, then you're seeing somebody mourn. But when you watch an animated character mourn in a film like this, because it's a an animated character, you can apply yourself to it in in a, in a much more accessible way than you can with a live action character because. You're just watching another person. Whereas with animation, you're watching yourself. You know, this is stuff that you could experience. This is stuff that you have experienced. And so you can experience it with them. And I think, um, yeah, and, and then just, you know, the tragedy around school shootings, something which thankfully we've never had to be um, 
you know it's not a it's not a ma major part of our of our culture in the UK it's there have been some horrible incidents but we don't have to run our schools with that as a possibility thankfully um but that doesn't take away the the urgency and the the dread and everything as you feel when you're watching the film and you're watching it unfold it's just a really well done piece of work and i'm really glad that netflix are, are you know picking up the animation baton here and saying we want to tell these stories we want to put them and make them accessible to everyone you know we for years since since the early 2000s everyone's been saying you know where's the new channel 4 where's the new you know where can we see brand new animation that's you know that tells tells different stories that's not cartoons so to speak uh um, netflix are kind of saying it could be us really there's definitely some potential there and i'm, I'm a little ambivalent as far as what they've done so far hmm. like I, I you know I have wavering opinions of their original content or their acquisitions, but it's like I say, it's just nice that there's interest coming from somewhere. Yeah, the fact that they're doing it is is half the battle. Well, fortuitously enough, we do indeed have to hand an interview with the filmmakers behind If Anything Happens, I Love You, conducted by the prolific squiggly contributor Martin Warren. So let's meet directors Will McCormack and Michael Govier. I read that you both worked as um, actors before, and I was curious what that transition was like from acting to directing. It was very kind of organic. I mean, we had, you know, both of and I, Will came, Will and I both came up through the theater. So we've, you know, done a lot of stage shows and a lot of live performances. And so I think that transition was very good. And then also we, you know, as actors, we performed all the roles and acted things out and sequences out as far as looks and designs. So that was uh, very helpful. And as far as like transitioning, yeah, this is the first time we've directed a live uh, animated short and, um, you know, previously I've done some directing on stage, but nothing of this kind of caliber. So it was, it was very exciting. I think a very organic process to, uh, and a good uh, collaborative working relationship between the two of us. Yeah, I agree with Mike. I think in part of an, in an actor's DNA is, you know, you're, 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 you're naturally collaborative. So, you know, collaboration comes really easily to us and, um, yeah, I mean, whether it's writing or acting or directing, the older I get, they all seem to be more connected than I had ever imagined. I mean, you know, you're really just trying to get to the center of something. And no matter how you can get there, you, you should take whatever path helps. So I think having been an actor and a writer and a director, they all sort of inform each other in ways that um, are really illuminating the older I get and the further I go into the business. They all seem to connect how did you uh, both get involved with If Anything Happens, I Love You? Yeah, I think this, this started um, very organically. It's very kind of interesting. Will and I are both actors, like you said, and we met at an acting class in uh, the Valley. And so we just were kind of like became fast friends and we're always getting together talking about, you know, writing. We were both writers and, and developing something. And early on, I had kind of pitched Will an idea about uh, telling a story with shadows and showing what shadows can be the inner life of the things you can't see within people. And so that was kind of the beginning of the process. And then um, 
you know, Will is just a, you know, a genius. He's a master writer already. I mean, he's an amazing actor, but he's just a master writer. And so it was so fun then to work with him and collaborate and then build out the whole rest of the script and the film. Yeah, it was really exciting. I mean, we were, we're writers, so we're in the struggle together. and We would meet for coffee and sandwiches and sort of volley ideas. And, and Michael really had this beautiful, I've always been interested in, in grief and writing about loss. And Michael had this beautiful kind of Jungian visualization of these shadows. And I thought, God, that what a gorgeous way to represent grief and trying to connect to um, these shadows. And I thought that is a gorgeous image. And it all became, it all sprung from there. And then of course we kept reading about um, the tragic recursive shootings that happen over and over and over again in America. And um, that's how we began, but it really began with an image. What was the reason to choose uh, a school shooting as a, your debut into my animation? I think we, we feel this, this film can only be told in animation in this way. And I think with animation, it's a perfect gateway to create um, an access point to talk about these huge emotions and huge topics. And so it was always going to be an animated film and it was kind of the perfect access point. And then as far as um, why it's a school shooting, I mean, Will and I didn't grow up in a time where you have active shooter drills. We didn't go to school and have those experiences. Now our, you know, nephews, cousins, everyone else younger than us has those experiences consistently. And so this is a thing that actually impacts more people than, you know, just going through those drills, you're stressed about the possibility of this happening. And so it is a, it is a reality in a world here. And so we wanted to kind of talk about this and the fact that Will and I love education. We're obsessed with learning. I mean, that's why we met at a a school, at a class, like we're obsessed about, you know, furthering ourselves and wanting to learn new things. And the fact that that location isn't safe, and, and um, that extra added stress, we wanted to kind of show about that. Then we also wanted to show about the loss of life, the grief. And I think, like you said, everyone can kind of relate to this in different ways, depending on the grief that you've experienced. But this particular kind of grief, sometimes people get left behind. The news cycle flips and they don't really go back to these communi- communities and like talk to people and help people um, deal with the long-term grief that is being in the trauma that's being experienced. Yeah. I think like, you know, we had a, we had a, um, a sort of a proverb taped to the top of our cork board, which was a, you know, when your parent dies, you bury them in the ground. And when your child dies, you bury them in your heart. And we thought so many parents have had to deal with this type of uh, loss that should be unimaginable, but that is actually common here in America. So um, it's something that we wanted to try to uh, wrangle with because it was something that, uh, you know, Americans face uh, all too often. And um, I'm glad that we did because it seems to have resonated with people. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you know enough, but the, the, the movie became sort of like a viral um, phenomenon on TikTok where kids around America and across the world were, were connecting to the film and, and, um, really availing themselves to sort of the vulnerability of this moment and sort of the fear that they feel. And it was um, really incredible to see. How did you to uh, partner up with um, Netflix or like, how did they um, support you during the production? 
Yeah. Um, well, we, we, one of our um, executive producers is Laura Dern, who has a strong relationship with Netflix, but also Marianne Garger, our producer, has a strong relationship there. And we sent them the film and they loved it. And it's um, surreal to have net to be partners with Netflix and then all of a sudden have your movie be in um, 1 billion homes, or <laughs> however many accounts they have. Yeah. But it is to have it, to have a small animated 2D short film about grief. And then uh, you wake up the next morning and it is across the world is a psychedelic feeling. It's really, really cool. Yeah, because all we had been doing previously, you know, we're just a little independent guy or the little film that could. And, and you know, we were in film festivals. We had been in, you know, over 40 film festivals and just kind of doing that circuit and like, you know, having a wonderful experience. We won, I think, like 12 of them. And we, we had all of these wonderful experiences there. And, you know, obviously a lot of it's all virtual this year. We only got to go to one festival live. Um, and so it was exciting to have such a massive platform because even if you think it's like, this film would have to be in film festivals for like 30 years to see that many, have that many people watch it. So it was just this kind of monumental moment. It's like, wow, we don't have to go to 30 years for the same film so we can make another one. And how did you um, both incorporate your um, experiences in acting to bring the characters uh, to life? I think, you know, as, as, as writers and, you know, film, filmmaking is a team sport. And, um, you know, as actors, I think generally communicating the sort of actions that we wanted to the artists and, and the sort of gestalt of the film and the feeling of it. I mean, I think Michael and I were, were committed to getting these moments right, because also in making an independent film, you know, with very little, very little money, you don't have a lot of time to um, reanimate. You're really getting to the moment one time, one or two times, you, you don't have a lot of room to uh, mess up. So, um, you know, I think as actors, I just in sort of embodying the sort of spirit and the emotion of the characters, I think was really helpful. Wouldn't you say, Michael? Oh, absolutely. I think it was very helpful. And like, yeah, we don't have a lot of runway. We can't, you know, animate that sequence four or five, six times and just keep breaking it down. So it's like, you know, we created reference videos to help facilitate moments, you know, um, you know, we would, you know, create reference videos for looks and tone and these things. And as far as how we do it, but it was very helpful because then, you know, just like any performance with these characters, you're trying to get to the root and the emotion of what they're feeling in that moment and moment by moment. And the nice thing is with animation, you know, once you lock a moment, you know, you can, you get to move on as opposed to like acting where it's like, you know, it's, there's a lot more variables than when you can actually drill down on, you know, at a drawing where you can actually get the thing you want to look the way you want it. Hmm. Yeah. Cause I was curious as well. Cause, um, like what made you both want to go with the um, style of the animation, uh, like with using the uh, use of shadows and stencils? Um, yeah, what made you two want to go for that uh, visual look? We love, I mean, we love all animation, We're huge animation fans. And um, this film, we thought it had to be in 2D because we wanted to get this very minimalist look. And we kind of had like a mate or North Star was kind of like 
If it didn't need to be in frame, it didn't need to be in frame. So a lot of times on the edges, we kept dropping things off. You get an impression of a feeling, you get an impression of this. And then as you pan across from shot to shot, maybe things on the edges of frame drop off and you just get the focus on that relationship and that particular moment. Um, like a very clear one is in the bedroom. When they pan across the whole bedroom, you see like, you know, a table, a chair, the bear, this, this, you know, a nightstand, like a whole room. Then when we cut back, it's just the bed. You know, so in this, the rest of the scene is the bed, but you know, there's furniture. It's, you feel that. And it's like, and so it's like, that was the same kind of thing we kept peeling away. And also then the film felt like grief, you know, so it had these grays, it had this, you know, very minimal earth tones on the front half of the film. And then the use of the introduction of color was to kind of show, you know, how memory, when you remember it, it was in color and then, but it was still through the filter of grief. So like, even if in this section, which we're calling like, you know, the, the memory section, um, the edges of frame are still kind of gray and washed out because it's still through the present day moment. And so there's a lot of thought as far as to that style and the design of why it needed to look that way. Yeah, I think it worked thematically and visually. I mean, the parsimony of the animation we thought a lot about, I think like, you know, with that sort of um, leanness, it felt like barren and desolate, like grief can feel, but also in terms of memory, you know, I think memory, when you remember things, you don't remember everything that was in the room, but you do remember how you felt. And I think that just paring down the animation to its essential elements was paramount for us because we thought that we could do more with a lot less. Why did you decide to go with a particular uh, color palette as well? I think the colors, like we wanted, you know, to bring some of the items that the girl had touched kind of to life because, you know, when you lose someone and you still have their items around you, be it a scrap of paper with their handwriting on it or any kind of other thing that represents them, there's still a lot of life charged in items. And I think that was the thing. It's like this, you know, this, the daughter had painted that, you know, injury or broken side of the house and she painted it. But so it was really charged with a lot of her life, just like her little shirt, you know, so it's had a lot of those things. And so we wanted to put more color into those to kind of give them that life. And then putting the color through the memory and then into the end sequence where more warms and yellows came in to kind of show that the conversation's beginning about grief and some healing and hope is actually still there. Yeah, we wanted to begin to give, have the movie come to life with color through the daughter. I mean, I know as a parent that, you know, you start to see the world through your child's eyes and it just happens sort of inexorably. I mean, my son is currently obsessed with planes and if he's not with me, which is rare, uh, if a plane goes by, I look up and I go, you know, I, you start to, because he can't say plane, but he can say, you start to see and feel the world through your children. And I think that that's really nice in the film is that the movie begins to sort of crackle and pop and, and begin to um, come to life as the, the, the daughter's um, world uh, is introduced. What challenges did you both face when uh, like working with the animation team, um, especially during, uh, you know, 2020 as it is already. Like, uh, I'm just curious what sort of challenges you faced with um, bringing the film to life. We were lucky when, you know, most of all of our production happened in 2019. So then by the time the pandemic started, we were in post and just finishing up into the very top of the year. And we finished the film before the pandemic 
you know, took over. So we were lucky in that regard. Like we didn't have to have virtual, you know, components. We actually all got to get together. And, you know, the film was built around, you know, my kitchen table, Will's kitchen table and Marianne's kitchen table. So we'd always get together and, you know, and it was just three animators and us. And we would just go through everything and break down scenes and kind of get re-inspired and figure out these moments and solve a moment. Yeah, and we got so lucky with our animation director, Young Renno. I mean, she completely captured the, the sort of pathos and the spirit of the film from the moment we met her. And, and I knew that from her first illustration, uh, which was, I think, the, the cat in the, in the doorway, right? In the daughter's mm -hmm. doorway. That, I knew from that drawing that she knew sort of the depth and the, the soul of the movie. And we were in really good hands right from the start. How important was uh, the decision on the music for this film, especially with uh, the partnership with the Inner City Youth Orchestra? Yeah, in, in a movie with no dialogue, I mean, the music plays a really, really important part. So the composer uh, was a, is a friend of mine. Her name is Lindsay Marcus. And I sort of had admired um, her work in other films and we showed her the film and, and like young ran, I mean, she completely understood the movie from the moment from her very first compositions. And then that King princess song, we, we dropped into boards right from the beginning and we were, we were lucky enough to get it for the film. And, um, yeah, with the youth orchestra, we met this guy, um, Chuck Dickerson, who's the, uh, orchestra director and, and they were able to lay down um, that beautiful section of Beautiful Dreamer when the uh, fireflies sort of go into the restaurant. So, you know, we talked a lot about the music and, you know, making a movie, you get lucky sometimes. And I feel like with um, Lindsay and with the KP, with King Princess song and, and meeting Charles Dickerson, we were, we, we, were, we were really lucky. And the music's so important because again, there's no dialogue. So it, it matters, like every single moment matters. Yeah, we needed. Yeah, the music is that other character, and we really was going to be able to move us through sequences and to kind of really fill it out. And yeah, and the Inner City Youth Orchestra was just amazing to work with. We had sent them um, the early, you know, early section of the film, and they said, "Oh my gosh, we we'd love, we'd be honored to be part of it." And we said, "Oh, that's wonderful!" And um, every year they do a concert for. Um, all the children and survivors of gun violence at the Walt Disney concert hall. So a lot of what they do and, and the things and the awareness that they're trying to bring is a very similar awareness to, uh, if not the exact same as what we're talking about. And they are talking about grief within all these different communities. I'm just curious as well about the reception since the film has been out on uh, Netflix, because before then, I'm, from my understanding, it was on uh, different uh, different film festivals, um, and then as um, well as you said, like uh, it's also had um, uh, some uh, appearance on uh, TikTok. But I'm just curious, since it's been on uh, Netflix, what the reception's uh, been like, and how uh, you both have felt about it. The reception has been incredibly strong and very wonderful and kind and people keep reaching out and a lot of people are reaching out. Um, survivors of gun violence have reached out. Also, a lot of people who just experiencing grief and the grief of this time. Like we have people saying, I, I you know, I lost I lost my grandparents. I lost a child this year. And this grief 
um, and showing this grief in this way, I think is giving people an access point to, you know, talk and kind of feel and have a moment. And also I think with TikTok, it's like all these kids and young, young people are having a moment to cry and getting that, you know, release. And it kind of gives you permission in a way. Yeah, I was, I, I, we've been, I, I, you know, we've been overwhelmed by the support we've had for the film and, and, and people's willingness to connect to it emotionally and, and uh, be available and, and be vulnerable and open to it. It's really been um, incredible. And, and, you know, we have Netflix to thank for that because, you know, if it were not for them, we, we would, we, and we, we love all these, you know, little film festivals that we were able to particip participate in, but to be, um, all over the world instantly is an, an incredible thing. And we were able to connect with and are connecting to people all over the world, which is, uh, as a filmmaker, I think it's completely uh, the most rewarding feeling you can have. And uh, so what are you guys hoping to do in the next, like next year? Do you hope to make another film together or are you both working uh, separately? Um, what would you like to do in the new year? Yeah, we're absolutely... We're, gonna... We're currently not even speaking. No, <laughs> this is the first time I spoke to him. We've, we've only been talking through lawyers, so this is a big day. <laughs> no, we uh, we we we're we're already making another film together. Oh wow! Is it uh, uh, an animated film or a live action? Yeah, we're already making another uh, animated short film, and then um, uh, we are also work uh, a short film, and we're also beginning a feature. So we're we have we have a company, and we're excited to continue to make more uh, animated films that uh, have something to say. That was Will McCormack and Michael Gavier, directors of the Oscar-nominated short film "If Anything Happens, I Love You." The film is available on Netflix. Next up. On the animated shorts nominees, Opera by uh, Mr. Eric O, who I think a lot of people are kind of familiar with from his work at Tonko House. Yeah. Who um, are their own uh, powerhouse organization. We've uh, had those guys on a fair few times over the years. This one's interesting. It doesn't feel... I mean, there are, there are some shared qualities, certainly in terms of, you know, how he is as an artist. But it's an interesting film. It feels a bit more like an installation. Yes. You know, and, and it's, it's, it works well. It's very watchable. It's really, it's, well, it's not so much that you're watching it, but you're kind of absorbing it and scrutinizing it and picking out all the details. Mm. Not just visually, but like this really meticulous sound work scattered throughout the whole film. And it, it's, it's very, very well thought through. So I dug that. I, I, I enjoyed the, the overall atmosphere of that film. Yeah, atmosphere certainly is something that 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 it's full of. Um, Eric O is, uh, I think most people might recognise his work. Uh, a few years ago, it was it was all over uh, social media. Uh, I think he did a film called How to Eat Your Apple or How to Eat an Apple, um, and it's one of those. He has he certainly has a style, or he has a. Um, a, a trademark, I suppose you could say. So it's like it's always fish and tiny people, and there's decay and there's there's ruin uh, in 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 his work. I've got a book on the shelf. Let's turn around and look at it. Um, the Moving Image Workshop, uh, which is a it's an one of the, uh, an animation book, uh, and he's illustrated it throughout. And I you know I remember picking up the book and the art is great. It's full of uh, Eric O's illustrations. Great. Um, uh, he's he's fantastic and Tonko House as well are absolutely superb they're ex-Pixar 
um, so it's Dice and, and Robert and uh, and Eric who've, who've left um, uh, left left Pixar to establish Tonko House. They did the Dam Keeper a couple of years ago. For those uh, listening uh, who want to kind of place their stuff, uh, it's monumental. It's a great piece of work. I really love opera. I think um, it's I like the cyclical part of it. I love I love how epic it is. It's majestic. It makes me want to watch it on the big screen. I've been quite happy um, watching uh, animation festivals, and I'm, I'm on the jury at Dingle, so I've been watching those films as well recently as well, and watching them on the small screen or the TV screen. Uh, and you want to give these films justice. You want to watch these films uh, on you know a bigger screen as possible. And for the most part, most of the films that I've I've watched, um, you know, doing math and all that type of stuff as well haven't suffered being on the television screen it's always preferable to see them on the big screen i mean you know imagine uh you know seeing um uh you know theodore ushev's uh, film uh from last year up on the big screen and, and all that you know it'd just be it'd be absolutely exquisite but um this is a film where i was watching and thinking god i want to see this on a cinema screen i want to see this at cinema one at home i want to see it massive and I want to watch it again and again, and I want to catch little bits here and there, you know, uh, watching it for like the second time, the third time, you know, you know, because you, you go, basically the premise is you go up and down, uh, you pan up and you pan down and you see in this pyramid and all these things are going on at the same time. And I noticed, oh, there's a room there and there's just people fucking in it. <laughs> you know, I didn't notice that the first time around. Oh, look, there's ghosts over there. I didn't realise. Oh, look, there's people worshipping there. Oh, look, there's a giant fish. I didn't realise that was there. Um, it's it's marvellous. It's absolutely fantastic. I've just, yeah, I can't get enough of it. I, I, um, I'm a massive fan of this film. Would you say it takes the top spot of this shortlist? You know what? If it took the top spot, I'd be delighted. I really would, yeah. Um, for me, uh, the type of the type of thing I'm into, it's between that and Genius Loki. I think that overall, on a sort of visual level, this one kind of nudges the others out. Although, I really did like the look of Yes People, and yeah, yeah, it does the most as far as appealing to what I have the biggest fondness for these days which is character work. Yeah. And, you know, there is plenty of stuff in Burrow from, like, the clips I've seen that is characterful. You know, there's certainly nothing done wrong, but it did strike me as quite constrained. And <clears throat> from what you were saying about what happens with the film as it goes on, maybe it throws those shackles off as it goes. But when it comes to Yes People, it felt like the constraints they sort of impose on themselves actually contribute to why it works. <laughs> And what I mean by that is the same kind of thing like where in a, an old Wallace and Gromit short, you know, the tiniest little eye movement or nose twitch says everything you need to know about where Gromit is at in his head, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you get a lot of stuff like that in this. Some just wonderful little sort of character bits of business. The lady sitting in her chair with the cigarette. Yeah. And she's sort of almost imperceptibly vibrating with rage or DTs or something. Yeah. And, um, you know, the kid doing the awful recital of the recorder and the teacher, her face just kind of revolving <laughs> through these different states of hopelessness, the closest she gets to actually having to comment on how terrible he is. <laughs> yeah. 
I do remember seeing it for the first time and 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 all everything you're describing, Ben, everything, you know, when it that was the moment for me. When we were I was watching it for the first time for math uh, for the selection for math. Uh, and it came through and we're watching it and I just watched her face and it was just, it was twisting and it was, it was doing very little, but you could tell behind the scenes, it was all what she was feeling. And then the result is is sublime. It's really sublime character work, like you say. Uh, And that was it. And that was the, you know, there's a moment in every film that you select or you take on board and decide that you love or, you know, and that's it for this film. And it is a wonderful series of, you know, vignettes. And the thing is, as to whether those put together amount to a film of great consequence, they don't really. But what you get is great. It's just sort of the overall thing is it's great that it got nominated. Hmm. But I, I, I would be very surprised if it was kind of considered against the other films for that reason the playfulness of it that I think to probably the types of people who would be making the decisions that would be synonymous with childishness and what people are kind of reluctant, I think to get on board with when it comes to animation is that you can still be playful, but be, you know, an evolved piece of filmmaking. Yeah. It's my theory. Maybe it'll be complete bullshit. (laughs) Maybe not complete. I think, you know, I don't, one of the other things worth noting about this as well is is it's not just about great camp, ca- character work. Uh, it's it's the, the mood that's set as well with the uh, it's like uh, a nineteen seventies uh, catalogue mm. as well with all the, the the backgrounds. And I'm not quite sure if they're photographs or if they're just well rendered or, or what what's going on there. But uh, apparently they, he took it from his uh, the, the director took it from his parents' own photographic archive. So. Um, yeah, that's just a nice little detail, just to give your film a little bit bit extra. And I think it's Iceland's first ever nomination for for uh, for an Oscar in this category at, at the very least, uh, which is great. Well, good luck to all. The audience vote has put at the moment. If anything happens, I love you in the lead, followed by Burrow and Genius Loki tied. Uh, the others have not yet been voted for. How rude. Uh, so if you want to weigh in, there's, uh, there's plenty of time, I think. Well, a few weeks. Uh, tremendous. I think we have a couple of people uh, who are nominated for said Oscars that we're going to be hearing from. Uh, we've got, yeah, we've got an interview with uh, the director, uh, co-director, writer, and the producer of uh, Soul from Pixar. So we've got Pete Doctor. Uh, who's the chief creative officer at Pixar, as well as the director of Soul. We've got Kemp Powers, who's the co-director and writer uh, of Soul, and Dana Murray, who is the producer of Soul. Tremendous. Pixar are known for creating films for for everyone. Uh, and in that vein, obviously, death is still a big subject, even for, for any audience. Uh, so can you tell me how you handled it as a concept? Uh, it appears that you avoided any kind of major uh, religious symbolism. And that must have been a real challenge to design in the writing and the, uh, the obviously, uh, pen to paper design. Yeah, that was definitely a goal. <laughs> I figured either we can avoid it and try to not piss anybody off, or we can just offend everyone. That would be the other way to go. Um, so we ended up going this way. 
Yeah, wanting to, you know, the nice thing was in doing the research, not many religions talk about what happened before we're born. A lot, a lot of discussion about what happens after we die. So we're definitely going to stay away from that. But the pre-life stuff, we get to kind of make up however we wanted. And that also allowed us to get to the central theme of the film, of course, which was about life. Um, so even though, you know, death seems to appear, um, really what the reason we added it to the film was, hey, you don't really appreciate life until you realize that it's temporary. You only got a little while, you know, and uh, I think the pandemic has kind of done that for people, too. Like the things that we took for granted, guess what? We're going to take all that away. Well, now I really appreciate sitting outside with a friend, having a cup of coffee, whereas before, eh, you know, it's part of every day. So, um, yeah, I think uh, investigating what our life is all about was really the fun and joy of working on this film. And did that come in the writing uh, as well, Kemp? Well, well, yeah, like Pete said it great. I mean, the, the, we did avoidance was great. I mean, like we, we did discuss for a little while showing the great beyond, trying to like come up with an idea of what the characters might see on the other side. But we really quickly determined that like that was a bad idea. That was a can of worms that we didn't want to open. And he's right in that, again, the focus was always um, life um, and like, you know, what's our purpose? Why are we meant to be, you know, what are we meant to be? be here and be doing. I mean, one of the most powerful components of the idea from the very early stages was this idea that, you know, you're in your hero's journey, your hero has a dream, he or she gets that dream, and then they live happily ever after. And the fact that we get to that happily ever after point at two thirds of the way through the film, to me, that was such a bold idea to like, you get what you wanted. And now what? Because it just makes you, <laughs> it puts you in a place that you never get to go in that journey. And, and, and again, if that's about life and living and, and making the most of it. Yeah, that's usually the end of the movie, right? Is and we win. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Kemp, you've written for stage, live action TV, and, and now feature animation. Uh, could you let us into your perspective on the freedoms of writing for animation, if there are, in fact, more freedoms for writing for animation uh, at a studio like Pixar compared to your other work? In terms of concept, is the sky the limit for animation? Yes and no. I mean, you can. I, I do think you can imagine on a bigger canvas, for sure, because there's things you can do in animation that just literally are not physically possible. Um, you, can you, can, you can create a world... Um, like that's in your mind and imagination and, and give it form in a way that just live action, I'm not saying it's impossible, but the, 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 the canvas of animation is, is incredible. That being said, um, there are of course limits because nothing in animation is there by accident. No, there's, there's no straight piece of garbage or coffee cup. <laughs> a team of people don't have to design, draw, and then render and then put in there. So yes, there's no limits except the limit of like time and energy and, and man and woman hours it takes to actually build out that world, um, which is, which is, which is quite different. Obviously, uh, putting that world together is, is uh, a big role for director, but also producer Dana, uh, you've worked at Pixar for years in different roles. You've produced short films such as Lou and smash and grab. Uh, but this soul is your first uh, feature. I'm curious as to the difference between producing a short and a feature at Pixar. Uh, obviously, the word bigger comes into mind, but uh, what were the challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think it just brings a lot more um, pressure 
you're working our the crew i think at our when we were at our peak we were over 350 people where you know when you're producing a short film at your peak you might be 45 so it's just a way grander um thing and you know working with um the musicians and the actors um it was just a big uh it was it was it was a great learning experience for me um pushed me a lot and yeah i mean you're just dealing everything's just bigger and better (laughs) (laughs) there's no going back now is it features for good now oh who knows i mean i love i love shorts as well and um you know who knows but yeah for now for now it's features fantastic um the film is uh, historic for Pixar because it portrays uh, the first uh, black main character. Uh, I wonder at which point in the concept creation of the film did uh, ideas around the main character's identity form? And how was the audience's reception anticipated in all this? Um, I don't know who wants to start there. I suppose being, being first on the scene on the film, uh, Pete, if you'd like to start there. Sure. Uh, we started really, the whole film was initially... Uh, all with souls, all just these <clears throat> amorphous blobs up in the great before. But as we got into it and realized, well, we're talking a lot about sort of the purpose of life and the joys of life. We got to show life. We got to interact with it in some way. So what if we took one of these characters, made them like they had already lived, and this character is trying to show the other character who doesn't want to go down and live why it's so great. What's so great about life? And then we thought, well, what would be so great about his life? Maybe he has some passion, something like, for us, writing or animation that we just, like, yeah, I can't get enough. And we initially thought actor, and then we tapped into musician, which was seemed really intriguing, both from it being fun to watch, but then also being very thematic to the film, this whole idea of, of jazz as improvisation, that you're, you're taking whatever comes to you and trying to turn it into something... Um, beautiful, something of value. That seemed very resonant with the theme we were talking about. So jazz seemed perfect. We understood pretty early on that jazz is an African-American contribution to, to culture, and it felt wrong to not have him be black. And then, of course, Dana and I realized we need a lot of help with that because we don't have insights into what that's like and the culture and the uh, all of that. So, you know, um, and, and specifically not just black, but also like musician, middle-aged musician in New York, you know, all those kind of things. Cause as Kemp will tell you, uh, and has told us, uh, like just cause you have one black person doesn't mean you encompass the totality of what that means. I mean, one of the things I like about this film is that You've always been trying to tell, and he made that clear, it's always been about telling a universal story. You know, I think the themes of this film, what the story is universal. Joe's journey is not a journey that you need to be a black person to go on. That being said, the decision was made that we're going to tell this universal tale through the specific prism of a black man. It should look real. It should be. It should be something recognizable to to black to black men to black people in general. And I think that's the difference. You know, it was never said like, oh, now it's a. It's, we're trying to make a quote unquote black movie. It's always been a universal tale told through the prism of of the black man's experiences. Sometimes little elements of race will come up in those experiences, and, and I'm really impressed that we were allowed to kind of manifest those in this film. But um, I don't think that it's any in any way 
negative or a distraction. It only enhances the the Joe character and makes us, I think, makes the audience feel even closer. Fantastic. Um, if we can go back on uh, final question, going back on to on to style, the soul counselors signify another stylistic push for Pixar. I wonder what iterations were designed before coming up with their their final look. Because although it looks simple, I'm sure it was a challenge for the riggers and the the animators to take on. Yeah, yeah. Do some pages. Yeah, he's looking we, for something. We have we have uh, this art of soul book. I don't know if you've seen. It. It's a little plug. Uh, <laughs> Some of the early designs you can see were were fairly abstract but very different. And then I think it was Afton who came up with these these very simple drawings. They're kind of line drawings, um, and we thought, well, that's interesting. But how would we make that in three D? Oh no, those are her drawings up there on the top. And then uh, Deanna twisted it using wires into these really intriguing, like. Uh, uh, Alexander Calder sculptures or something. And they're really uh, fun. And we thought, well, this will be easy. It's a line. This is like a gift to our our um, crew because it'll be so easy. It turned out to be the hardest thing in the movie. <laughs> and did the animators thank you for that, Dana, as you were passing that on to them? Well, yeah, there's always a group of animators that actually wants to be really challenged. So, of course, people were, like, raising their hand, like, I want to animate that because it's the most painful character to animate. Um, they were really difficult. And I think, like, because you have to move each little, like, what do you call it? Why am I blanking on that? Anyway, I'm totally blanking on the animation term. What are they animating? The Oh, well, points in space, a little spline. I spine. Okay. Trying to think of spine. I wanted to say spine. I was like, that's not right. Yeah. So no, there's always a group that like wants the most difficult. So in in a way, it was a gift. Fantastic. So that was Pete Doctor, the director, Kent Powers, co-director, and Dana Murray, producer of Pixar's Soul. And the film is out on digital on March 23rd. And on Blu-ray and DVD on March the 29th. Fabulous stuff. Why, that's mere days away. Yeah. You can also watch it on Disney Plus uh, if you're not busy watching The X-Files. Wonderful stuff. Well, uh, I shall be checking the film out. It sounds uh, sounds brilliant. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for our first Squiggly Animation podcast of the new year. A spring special. <laughs> Spring is in the air. Spring has truly sprung now that uh, now that we're podcasting. <laughs> so I think that's all for this episode. Uh, Plugs-wise, there are a couple of events coming up. My latest film, Speed, is still doing the rounds just about. For my fellow Canucks, it'll be part of this year's Toronto Animation Film Festival, a.k.a. Taffy, in the suitably titled Oddball Collection Short 6 at 3 p.m. Toronto time, on March 27th. Info and tickets for that are available at taffy.com, spelled T-A-A-F-I. Then in April, it'll be part of the Brussels Independent Short Film Festival called Made Trash. Info for that's available at callmadetrash.net, C-O-U-R-T-S-M-A-I-S-T-R-A-S-H.net. Speed is part of the opening screening. And a little bit before then, this Thursday, March 25th, Laura Beth Cowley and I are presenting a special squiggly screening with our good pals at Cardiff Animation Nights. It's going to be a great hour of top-notch animation with some Q&As to boot. We'll be speaking with Shoko Hara, director of Just a Guy, 
Will Anderson talking about his new film Betty, and recent Nexus signees Hayne and Paul, directors of the film Peepin. As usual, that one will be a free stream via the Cardiff Animation YouTube channel, kicking off at 8pm, and it won't be staying up once it's done, so be sure not to miss it. Check out their Twitter, at Animation Nights, for the link on the night. Well, that's it for now. We'll be back before too long, I suspect. In the meantime, I'm Ben Mitchell, at Ben L. Mitchell on Twitter. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson on Twitter. And Squiggly is at Squiggly on Twitter. We're also on Instagram, at Squiggly Animation, and Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. Follow us on all of them. I demand it. Yeah, follow us for all our nonsense. Get involved. Until next time. Happy animating. Goodbye.